0: Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you this morning on this cold morning. Lord, we pray that you would set our hearts on fire, that you would fill us now. Lord, you would come by your Holy Spirit and fill all that we do today. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill my words and open the scriptures. Come, Lord, and open our hearts and our minds that we might know and encounter Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I wonder how you feel about waiting. Favorite thing to do? Yes. <laughs> like when you're standing in the grocery store and there's like fourteen people in line ahead of you and and the, 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 the self-checkout machines, two of them are broken and it's clear that the other two are being run by you know people who've never touched them before. Maybe you're sitting in line in traffic and the light turns green and it's clear the person in front of you is either texting or just lost in space and you're late to somewhere important you've got to be. Uh, we were laughing the other day, my, my wife recently got her elderly mother a new tablet and she, her mother was frustrated because she couldn't get it to start and, and Catherine said, all you have to do is touch the screen and wait. And she said, you know I hate waiting <laughs> and of course we do know she hates waiting but we're kind of like her too. You ever been needing to get somewhere important and you've got to print and that's the time your computer decides you need to learn about print drivers or you've got to download a new version of the software? Waiting is a very difficult thing. Now, those are kind of simple things, right? Things that we can put up with. But there are a lot of other more serious kinds of waiting. Like there's the, the waiting of someone who's longing for a meaningful and significant kind of work that actually matters, but it doesn't seem to appear. Or the waiting of the spouse who's trapped in a hurting marriage that appears that it will never get well. There's just no ability to change. There's a the waiting of the single person who well, they want marriage. And they're waiting for that guy or that gal that God will bring along the way. I I do know someone who was waiting for a really long time. And she had this long list of like 43 qualities that she was asking God for in a husband. And and over time, it got to the point where it it was down to just two things. (laughs) I want him to be male and I want him to have a job. Waiting. And that's not to belittle that. It's just the way waiting often changes us and shifts us along the way. How about the childless couple who's desperate to start a family? And they're waiting day in and day out, week in and week out. Their prayers seem to go unanswered and their intimacy is no longer enjoyable. It's almost a task to be endured, to get to the goal. Tom Petty was right when he said the waiting is the hardest part. Every day you get one more yard. You take it on faith. You take it to the heart. The waiting is the hardest part. The theologian and ethicist Lewis Meads of Fuller Seminary put it like this. He wrote, waiting is our destiny. As creatures who cannot by themselves bring about what they hope for, we wait in the darkness for a flame we cannot light. We wait in fear for a happy ending that we cannot write. We wait for a not yet that feels like a not ever. And you see this all through the Scriptures in the Old Testament and into the New. People just like you and me waiting, waiting for change, waiting for promises to be fulfilled, waiting on God. We see that in our gospel lesson this morning in Luke chapter 8. We see a number of different people waiting and in two who couldn't be more different from one another. Now let me just give you a little context and then we'll dive into the text. Jesus has just been off to the region of the Gerasenes. Along the way, he sh- calmed a storm showing himself to be a lo- the Lord of nature. Once there, he delivers a man that... that nobody ever thought could be well, completely restores him to his sanity, freeing him from the demonic effects that have been going on in his life. And Jesus is now on his way back to Capernaum. And in fact, it says that everybody's waiting for him when he gets there. In fact, that's where our text begins. And if you want to look at your scripture sheet, or if you've got a an app there on your phone or up on the screens, verse 40 says, Now when Jesus returned the crowd welcomed him for they were all, everybody say it, waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue. Now Jairus is an incredibly important man in the town. In fact he's probably the most important man in town because he's the ruler of the synagogue. He's incredibly influential. Now, this is not like today where there's a church on every corner. There's a synagogue in Capernaum, and he is the ruler of the synagogue. He's incredibly important. He's responsible for keeping the place running, reading the Torah, administrating the law in that region. He sort of acts as not only priest, in a sense, but he also acts as judge, often settling minor disputes that come about. He keeps up with the law and everybody knows him, and he's very respectable and highly regarded, and he's got a huge problem that needs immediate attention because his little girl is dying. It says, and falling at Jesus's feet, he implored Jesus to come to his house where he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. He is desperate the kind of desperation that a parent or grandparent knows in the face of the sickness of a child, he is completely and totally desperate. How do we know this? Because he falls at the feet of Jesus. And the synagogue ruler, the most important man in town, in an oriental culture that highly values honor, does not fall at the feet and grovel at some itinerant preacher's place it's just not what you do he doesn't beg others to help him others come to him to find help and yet there he is in the dirt in front of the crowd everybody in town knows him at the feet of jesus he's desperate and jesus responds with a yes and we know this because they start off to jesus's house Now, can you imagine, just for a moment, before you run ahead in the text, what's going on in Jairus' heart at that moment? Like, hope is starting to emerge. And, of course, on the inside, there's got to be that racking fear that, oh, but what if? You know that mixture of hope and fear that comes when it looks like the answer to the thing that you need is coming, but you're not sure yet? It's that in-between place. What he doesn't understand at this point is that healing is essentially a done deal. I mean, it's like the fat lady is singing with regard to his daughter, but he doesn't know that right now. See, in the faith life, there's often a pause between Jesus' answer and our experience of Jesus' answer. And, And this is so important to understand. A lot of people miss that. Oh, there are the immediate answers. You see them all over the scripture. But often there's a lag that we have to walk through along the way. Now, verse 42 says, As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She's been waiting a long time herself. 12 long years With an incurable disease, she spent all her money on doctors and it hasn't got better. And in fact, in Mark's version of this, he says, and they made her worse. She's broken, she's worn out, she's alone. Now, if you have ever dealt with a chronic illness or you've ever walked through life with somebody who has a chronic illness, you know how incredibly exhausting it can be. Like you get worn out, going from doctor to doctor to appointment to appointment, hoping this time we've got the answer. It's like this roller coaster of emotions. You go up, oh, a solution, and you come down. Oh, that didn't work. And it wears you out as you go. It has this way of of not only causing you to perhaps spend all that you have looking for a solution, but it has a way of isolating you from the people around you. Because everybody else who's not your immediate often get worn out and they disappear. And in our culture we don't like immediate we don't like anything that isn't immediate success. I mean it's hard to walk through. Now this woman has not only dealt with this physical problem, but she she's experienced a tremendous psychological effect along the way. We're told the nature of her illness. She's had a 12-year discharge of blood, which is Scripture's polite way of saying that she's got an uncontrollable menstrual flow. It means that not only is she sick and in pain, but it means she can't have children. It means she can't be touched by people in her culture because she's ceremonially unclean In fact, it it was so hard on women in this kind of a situation. They were almost treated like lepers, unclean, untouchable. She's not allowed to be in the midst of other people's company because in that culture at that time and as the law was in place, to touch somebody who's unclean is to become unclean yourself. And so you see in the scriptures, the people who were the most outside were those who either had some kind of a bodily discharge or someone who was dead. And we run into both kinds of people in this text, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. So what does she do? she's, She's an outsider who can't be in worship, who can't be in the community, and should not be in the crowd that day. Well... Verse 44 says, she came up from behind him and touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. She came up from behind because she doesn't dare approach him from the front. And Jesus realizes that something's happened. Verse 46, he says, someone touch me for I perceive that power has gone out of me. And that word power there is the word dunamis. Dunamis from which we get our word dynamite it's kind of like there's an outflow of tremendous power from Jesus's body it's almost like on on a day like today when your battery won't start and you take the jumper cables from a good battery and you hook them up to the dead battery and there's a flow of power from one to the other That's a bit like what's happening here. Jesus senses an outflow of power from himself to somebody else. But it's interesting, he doesn't immediately know who it is. He does feel the draw, though, the pull. And he stops. Now they're on their way to Jairus' house. The crowd is pressing in. And you know what crowds are like, especially rambunctious crowds and this surely is one of those he stops and slows everything down and he he's seeking to find out who it is that had to have taken some time to get him to be quiet enough so that he can ask around he's looking at people it says that everybody's denying it so he's he's like dialing in on the people who are in front of him and around him who touched me and nobody's giving the answer What do you think is going on inside of Jairus at this moment? I mean, he's desperate. He's come as a father to find healing for his sick and dying daughter. And there's this interruption. From his perspective, this is bad timing. I love what Tim Keller says. He writes this. The woman with a chronic condition is getting attention instead of the little girl who has an acute condition. And this makes no sense. It's absolutely irrational. In fact, worse than that, it's malpractice. If these two were in the same emergency room, any doctor who treated the woman first and let the little girl die would be sued. Jesus will not be hurried. See, Jesus is after more than just healing the woman's body, and he has the power to do that. He's after a deeper kind of healing for her. As wonderful and as important as the healing is for her body, the healing that he's giving her is even more profound than that. Jesus has come to find the lost, and she is lost. Jesus has come to set captives free, and she is a captive, Jesus has come to restore broken hearts and she's got a broken heart. And he's come to announce God's favor. And man, she needs some good news. See, he's not another person who's going to reject her and shun her and shame her. He's not another religious leader who's going to put her on the margins and on the outside. He's not going to exclude her he's giving her so much more than she expected because what he's doing is he's restoring her to the community and he's restoring her to herself. He's lifting up within her something that was never done in that culture. He was giving dignity to a woman. And that is the heart of our Lord. And he's restoring her most importantly to relationship with the Father because she's felt like an outcast and an outsider from the people of Israel. Verse 48, he said to her, daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. We heard that in that reading from Galatians, we are called to being sons and daughters. John chapter 1, verse 12, but to all who receive Jesus, he gives the right to become children of God, not servants, not even friends, children, daughters, and sons of the Lord Almighty. We've got to understand that the Christian faith is not about religion. We, We might do liturgy. We're going to celebrate things that people might call religious. The Christian faith is about relationship, a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. That is what we do here and celebrate and sing about and rejoice in and come together on a day when it would have been a lot easier to stay in bed. We come to celebrate who he makes us, to be reminded as the world bangs on us and crashes at us, as the circumstances of life try to pull us away, we come to be reminded what our identity is as a son and as a daughter of the Most High and Living God. That's who you are. And that's His invitation to you today. Come back to who you are or enter into it for a first time if you've never known this. Thank you. Go back to the text. Verse 49. While Jesus is still speaking to her, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Again, think about what's going on inside of Jairus when that news comes. Do you think that it felt like reality is melting away at that point? Like the ground is giving out from underneath him? Is he shocked? Is he disappointed? Is he angry at the woman? Is he angry at Jesus? Now, a couple of moments ago, I said, remember, Jesus will not be hurried. He basically says to Jairus, don't panic. It's it's like, you know, if I'm sure you've never had this happen to you, but maybe you're panicking, (laughs) you're worried. And somebody says to you, don't worry. That's not very helpful, is it? Usually that's the point at which you want to punch him in the nose. Just take a deep breath. It'll all be okay. And yet, Jesus says, don't panic. But then he says, trust me. Don't don't fear. Only believe. I'm in no rush here, Jairus. Friends, you need to understand and you've probably experienced this personally, God's sense of timing is often so confounding to us. Someone once said, God is a three-mile-an-hour God, but we want to drive 90. we got to get there fast. It needs to be now. We don't have time, Lord. Why are you out for a Sunday stroll? We should be in the fast lane right now. God wants us to know that His love... And His grace, they are not diminished by His delays. His love and His grace for you are not diminished by the delays that you experience. In fact, I love how Tim Keller puts it. He says, Jesus is not saying to us, I will not be hurried even though I love you. He's saying, I will not be hurried because I love you. I know what I'm doing. And if you try to impose your understanding of schedule and timing on me, you will struggle to feel loved by me. And isn't that what happens to us in those places? In the midst of the disappointment, in the midst of the waiting, in in the midst of the confusion, all the the stuff, all the diseased views that we have about who God is, it tends to surface in those moments, doesn't it? If you really loved me, wouldn't you treat me better than this? If you're a good God, how can you let this happen? Don't you love me, God? Are you really a powerful God? All the things that that go on in our lives tend to surface in those kind of places, in the confusion and in the waiting. Looks like I've lost the last page to my sermon. So you're going to have to wait for a moment. But I won't worry. Thank you. So, what does Jesus do? They get to the house in verse 51. He allows no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James, and the father and the mother of the child. Everybody is weeping and mourning and gnashing their teeth because they know death better than we do. They saw it all the time. They saw it every day. They were they were close to it. We put it at arm's length. We tried to to make it clean and over there, but they dealt with it all the time. And they're weeping and they're mourning and he says do not weep she's not dead she's just asleep now Jairus has had several opportunities to walk away from Jesus at the point in which Jesus said don't panic it's going to be okay let's keep going well he could have just brushed on by and gone his way when they get to the house and everybody's saying she's dead don't bother could have said, Jesus, no, 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 don't come up into the room. We need to be alone with our child right now. We can't tolerate you up here. And yet what happens, he's got at least enough faith to trust, to trust the Lord in the moment. And Jesus goes into the room and he takes her by the hand. Can you see him sitting on the bed next to her? And he says, child, arise. It's resurrection language. It's the same word for resurrection. See, they were looking for a healing, and Jesus is giving a resurrection. They were looking for one thing, but Jesus is revealing something even greater. And it's, as he says, Child arise, and you see it in Mark's version, particularly to Letha Kuom, little girl, get up. It, it's the same kind of tenderness that a good parent or a grandparent has when they go to wake their child up in the morning. I don't mean after you've asked them for nine times in their life for school. I mean the calm, peaceful little one, dear, honey, sweet one, it's time to get up. See, the greatest enemy that, that you will face, and you will face it one day, barring the Lord's return, is death. And what does Jesus do? Well, he takes the teeth right out of death's mouth. And, and he speaks into death as though it's nothing to worry about. Little honey one, sweetheart, I say to you, arise. And, and I want to say this to you. Death is not the last word. It's not the last word. Not, not in Jesus. One day, when that day comes and you face it, you're going to hear him say, daughter, son, it's time to get up. It's time to get up. It's going to be the voice that you've longed to hear your entire life that you've always known, but, but perhaps only in a whisper. And it's going to echo through your very being. It's time to get up. What happens in the waiting? Jesus is revealing something about himself. Let me ask you this morning, what are you waiting on? Where, where are you at the point where you're like, I don't know if I can go any further. In that place, don't go away from the Lord. Move toward Him. And how do you do that? Just by being honest with what's going on inside. You see, there's no way to get free from all the diseased views about God except to confess them, to to be honest about them before Him so that He can speak into it, so that He can reassure you that you belong to Him. What are you waiting for? What you're afraid isn't going to happen. Don't be afraid. Trust me, says Jesus. Let me reveal to you what I'm doing. Let's pray. But Lord, please enter into the places of waiting. You're there. Help us to enter into it with you. And Lord, show us, restore us, heal us, put us back to our right minds, restore us to the community, give us new hopes and dreams, but above all else, Lord, would you restore us to yourself? Speaking to us those words that we'll hear. Little child, get up. That we might walk this life in peace, because we walk it with you. Lord, for your sake, and because you tasted death, but it could not hold you, we pray these things, Jesus. Amen.